Hey, Deserving Listeners, we have a special guest on the podcast who knows a lot of things about a lot of things. So I thought we would get into that. Please introduce yourself to Podcast Land. Thanks, Kirk. It's a, it's a real honor to be here today because I feel in some way I'm sitting here because of you. I reached out to you. I don't know if you remember this now, but I reached out to you and I think it was 2015 to talk about my potentially coming to Antioch University and to do a Fulbright scholarship with you guys. And here I am six years later pandemic later, uh, sitting in Antioch. And I, I do owe, owe a lot to you. I think you, you put me in the right track. So thank you. And I've listened to your podcast for many, for many months now, you know, in the last, it kept me going through, through lockdown in Ireland. So thanks, Curtin. It, it is a, a, it's a big honor to be here today. So my name is Richard Hogan, and I'm a systemically trained family psychotherapist. I'm working in Ireland, and I'm the clinical director of Therapy Institute. And I write every week for the, a national newspaper around called the Irish Examiner. And I write about things that I experience in my clinic uh, through my teaching. I, I, I teach in a school and I also lecture um, around the self and psychology and education. And so I write every week about what I'm, what I'm seeing. I write about things that are you know, fascinating to me. I write about systemic racism. And I, I, you know, my last article there was about the, the football in, in, in England and uh, the, the racism that was leveled at the three. Yeah, tell us about that. I, I remember reading a little bit about that. Yeah, the players, it's, it's a fascinating, for me, I found it really fascinating to watch because the players took a knee before the match. Each player took a knee before the match to outline the injustices and the inequities that live in society, right? A little gesture to say to society, we're not there yet. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. And they got, England got to the final and three young black players missed penalties. And there was a huge, there's a guy called Marcus Rashford. I don't know if you know him here, but he plays for Manchester United. He's 23. This guy has done more in his life than most of us will do at this young age than most of us will do in our lives. He's, he's, during the pandemic, he did an awful lot for the area that he lives in, humanitarily speaking. He went around and provided food. And, you know, he, he does a lot for his society and for the people that he grew up with. And there was incredible racism launched at them. Okay, and so you could look at that, and the government came out. Boris Johnson came out and said, "This is terrible. This is awful. That this this is abhorrent." And of course, that it is abhorrent. But at the start of the Euros, when they were taking the knee, the Home Secretary said, "That's just gesture politics, and we don't get involved in gesture politics." So diminished what they were doing. And then when she was interviewed about it, and they said, "What do you think of the supporters who were booing the taking of a knee?" She said, "Well, that's up to them to do." That's their decision. That's their right to boo it if they want to, right? And Boris Johnson himself, the prime minister, was kind of equally muted about the whole thing when he was being interviewed about it. He kept quiet about what was going on. And then, of course, when there was a huge backlash to what the what these players had experienced, one of them was like 19 years of age and the racism on social media was just incredible. They, of course, spoke out because they realized that society, you know, that the, the zeitgeist had moved slightly and that people were quite really outraged at what was happening. And then they were appalled and they were clamorous and they're appalled, you know, they're appalled by what was happening. But as I wrote about it, I said, well, there's a systemic piece there. There's the systemic racism there. If the leaders are going to kind of joke about it and mock it and diminish it, you know, you set the culture for what's going to happen in those stadiums. People in those stadiums aren't in a vacuum. They're from our society. And if your leaders mock what's going on when someone's drawing, a, uh, you know, when someone's shining a bright light on a very, very, you know, insidious situation and that's there for all of us in all of our countries um, and you mock that, well, then you allow the culture to exist. You allow these people. And I, my point was that the people who launched those racist remarks 
while apparent, aren't the, the real issue. The real issue is systemic racism. What's in our society that allows them to feel that they can launch those racist remarks and get away with it? And I think that that's the kind of thing that we need to look at as a people. Yeah, obviously, in the United States, we suffer from similar kinds of systemic racism and leadership problems. What were the specific complaints that they were trying to raise awareness around? I think what they were trying to say is that, you know, people in, in England, they were speaking about England in particular, yeah. don't have an equal shot. There, is not, there isn't equity yeah. of employment. There's not equity of opportunities. I think that's what they were really trying to say. And they were trying to say, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in Ireland and I was a fan, I'm a real fan of football. And, you know, during the years, you'd see bananas been thrown at black players. Right. You'd hear, you'd hear monkey chants in the stadiums. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, been a, it's, it's been a hard sport to follow. You know, for someone who has, you know, really incongruent ideas to that. And I think what they were saying is that, you know, they get criticized because they're making so much money. And people would say, a lot of people would say, well, you know, you're thriving under the system. You're thriving. You're making millions of euro, Marcus Rashford and these other guys. So how can you say it's racist because you're making so much money? But they're not talking about themselves. They're talking about everybody who exists in the society. And it's very easy to kind of go you know, and, and look at that and say, but well, you're doing well. And that's what critics would say. And that's the systemic piece, I think. It's like, you know, Muhammad Ali throwing his, you know, his medal into the Ohio, Ohio River and someone saying, well, he could have gone to a different restaurant. There was another restaurant that would serve him. So why do you want to go into the restaurant that wouldn't serve him? Well, that's the reason why Jim Crow existed for so long. And that's what they were standing up about. You know, they were standing up, they're standing up for, okay, we're doing well. But if you look at the arc of, you know, everybody's life, most people aren't doing well and most people aren't getting an equal shot. And that's what the, that's what I actually really attached myself to this football team. Being from Ireland, that's a tough thing. I'll tell you that much, Kirk. I don't know if you know the, the history there, but, you know, to support the, the English football team would be something that you would have never have even dreamed of as a kid. But when I saw what they were doing, and I was thinking, you know, this is, this is what we need in our society. You know, we need these people to stand up and, and, and actually, like Rosa Parks, sit down and take a knee and say, look, things aren't equal. Things aren't fair here. And yes, we're doing well, but not across the board here. And that's what they were looking at. Right. Yeah, I find it interesting that when they get attacked, they're making their point. You know, they, mm. all they did is take a knee. And the point that gets made, and I actually only heard this today, you know, um, that it's unpatriotic. You know, it's yeah. it's against the flag and it's against the country. And you're kind of going, well, they believe in the country so much. This is what, you know, they believe in the flag so much. It's not that they're against the flag or they're against the country. They believe in it so much they want to see a change in it so that it's equal for all. And surely we all want it to be equal for all, you know, that we all, we all get an equal shot at things. Yeah. It's particularly egregious in the United States when racists will use that argument because our country is at least philosophically founded on equality well i think it's, it's a very good point and uh, my grandmother was american I, I love america america in ireland is like a concept i think it's like you know we we really uh, we look it's like a big brother you know you're the big powerful brother that we love uh, <laughs> you know it's it's funny you know we have this relationship with america that we love the presidents and we always try to make sure that they're irish somehow we we we, we wrangled obama into our irish kinship <laughs> and uh, he came to ireland in 2011 it was a very funny moment he 
he's one of the great orators, I think, of the you know the last hundred years. He's just a great speaker. Yeah. And he started off his speech and he said, you know, my name is Barack Obama and I'm here to get the apostrophe we lost along the way. <laughs> <laughs> and that dude had the audience out of his hand, you know, because we're like, yes, we know you're Irish. But uh, he was the first black Irish president. <laughs> that's, what we, that's what we say in Ireland. But I, I, I agree with you. But I, I suppose what I, what I feel when I look at it is that it doesn't have to be one or the other. I, I think... What I what I find in America, what I find happening in America, when I look at it, is the polarization, the you know, the things that are really feeding into these echo chambers, and you you can be both, you know, and that the difference between somebody, uh, you know, who's a Republican and someone who's a Democrat doesn't mean that they're difference in people. It's just a difference of opinion. And surely we can sit with the both and position. You can be uh, patriotic and you can be a Democrat and you can be patriotic and you can be a Republican. And those two, those two things should exist, you know? hundred percent. But to say that someone can't kneel to stand mm. up for, equal, for inequality is to me against the American ideal. Uh, you uh, were involved with a television show involving right. people yeah. coming together with opposite points of view. Tell us about that. Yeah, thanks, Kirk. Um, we developed a show called Eating with the Enemy, you know, and I, and I saw it over the last five years. I was watching, I'm always watching American politics. I'm always, you know, really interested in what's going on in America. It's just kind of my background, my grandmother was American. We always talked about America. We always went to American holidays. You know, it's just been a part of kind of uh, the family and, uh, and our tradition. And um, In Ireland, you'd go to American holidays? Yeah, we'd go to America for holidays, yeah. Oh, you'd go to the United States for yeah. holidays. Oh, yeah, I we'd see. go to holidays. Yeah, we, as, as I was just trying to imagine in my head. I'm like, you were celebrating Fourth of July in Ireland or something. And oh, I was we'd like, have. Oh. We, well, we we would as a family. We would talk about uh, say um, Thanksgiving, definitely. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. That'd be something we talk about in November. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's and cool. I'd have friends of mine who were American, uh, you know, and we'd always connect and WhatsApp and talk. You know, and so there's there's always been that connection, you know, as a as a family. And I suppose when I when I thought about Fulbright, it made sense to me to go to America, you know, because it just just felt it just felt right. Yeah. But the show, um, I was watching, say, Trump over the last four years, and uh, while it was very entertaining, let's say, uh, viewing for 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 non for people who don't have skin in the game, let's say, you know, for a neutral country, it, it was entertaining, and it was kind of seen like that, and you know, people kind of viewed. Jimmy Kimmel's taken it, and, and and that was kind of like you know how we how we consumed it. It was like probably with confusion, a little bit of car crash. You didn't want to look at it, uh, a, a bit of embarrassment. But I also, what I was watching was the incredible polarization uh, as I saw it of people and the inability to have a discussion around difference. And like you said there, you know, Kirk, about when, when you say that it's unpatriotic, you're just shutting down the conversation. It's a very nice way to end all discussion. Right. And and that's what, how I'd see it. It's a it's a very irresponsible and linear way to look at something and say, well, that's just that. And that's the end of that. Not, you know, let's not ask a bigger question is why are they doing that? Mm-hmm. And what, what am I doing that allows that to be there so that they have to take a knee? And so, you know, that it's a much wider thing. It's a much more complicated thing to do. So it's much easier to shut it down. And I was noticing in schools, even in Ireland, because we are influenced by America, heavily influenced by America. I mean, we, we are as a country. And I was noticing in schools, students doing the same thing, shutting each other down. And if they had an opposite, opposing point of view, they shut them down and said, well, you're, you must be a racist or you must, if you think, if you, if you support, this is what I read here in the classroom, if you support Trump, because I try to get dialogue going, they'd say, if you support Trump, you're a racist. Right. And I was like, but it's not that simple. Let's hear his point of view. Like, you know, let's just, let's have a discussion. And I was, I was seeing this in the classroom and then I was seeing it in universities. 
as well, that they wouldn't be able to hear difference. They'd shut it down. And in my analysis of it, I was thinking, it seems like identity is getting kind of caught here. People's identity and what they believe are, are kind of coming together. And so we came up with this idea of, of the show called Eating with the Enemy, sitting people down from opposite sides of a, of a discourse and hearing over a meal, because you know, you know over a meal, it's kind of an intimate thing to do, break bread with somebody, sit down and have a meal. And then I'd prompt, we'd have questions that myself and the other psychologist, Malia Coyne, we'd prompt them through different questions to get them to, into some of the discourse that we wanted them to have. And it was just an incredibly successful show, first of all. But personally, you know, when they asked me to be involved in it, I was thinking this could be like Jerry Springer and I would want nothing, you know, you're this and you're that. And you're, I was thinking that's nothing that I want to be involved in. I'm a very positive person and, and I want to develop discourse, but in a healthy way. And um, it was just incredible. We had a member of the trans community sit down with a Catholic priest. And we just had this really tender moment where the priest said, you know, because, you know, I don't know if it's like what it's like here, but, you know, the Catholic Church has had a pretty good grip of Ireland for for many years, you know, uh, and uh, that's gone in the last 20 years. But the Catholic priest said, um, I try to look for God every day. And I found it in your conversation, he said to the, the member of the trans. Yeah, it was just an incredible moment. It was like a seminal moment in Ireland's kind of like history where a Catholic priest was saying to a member of the trans community, you know, we're all one here and you're beautiful and God is in you as well. And, you know, the amount of emails I received from that moment, and we had people sitting down who were Trump supporters, and we had a, a, a you know a member of our black community who's a lawyer sitting down. I remember from the you know supporter of Trump, and we had the discourse there. And it, what it really showed is that yes, this discourse has become coarsened over the years, but actually there's no difference between us. You know, we might so what, what, how did they see eye to eye the Trump supporter and the, and the well, other? they didn't. They actually yeah. didn't see ITI. They actually said that how they came to the conclusion is like, you know, we may differ, but I respect your, diff- I, I respect your opinion. And I, uh, and I actually, in that conversation, it was very interesting. Um, the guy who, who was the Trump supporter, Luke said, I've never had a girlfriend and I've never, and he left his, he left his guard down. And in that moment, they actually connected through a very, very vulnerable and honest and transparent moment where he said, I've never had a relationship. And maybe that's why my views are, you know, lacking a little bit of, you know, broadness and and mm. and something else in, in them. And and the and the, uh, the black lawyer said, you know, said, said, yeah, well, that's thank you for being so honest. God, I'm 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 kind of taken back by your honesty there. And they actually had a really nice connection. And they dis- they didn't agree. They didn't come to an agreement, which you know doesn't happen always when you're having a discussion with someone. You, you don't have to. And but they were respectful in their difference. And that's what we were trying to get to in the show is that you can be different and have differing opinions, but it's about the dignity and the way you respond to somebody who's different. That's what makes, you know, a healthy society. Right. And the increasing of the distance and the fanning of the flames is what causes some politicians to be elected and to line their pockets with a lot of money. Frankly, it's basically there's, a business to, to fan the flames. Absolutely, and I can see what really, really big, uh, you know, social media like Ben Shapiro and all these guys that you have over here, and they they speak about the coarsening of uh, public debate, and yet themselves are the ones. You know, whenever I see the tweets come up, I'm like, well, there's a further coarsening of the public debate. There's a further, you know, uh, 
echo chamber there's a further like you know it's either it's either us or them right and you write you write books about it and you make millions of euro off it saying that this isn't isn't this terrible and then you go look at the tweets and you say, well you're just as you said yourself so elegantly you're sm- you're, you're fanning this the flames here because it's very profitable yeah and the small minority of voices such as yourself that are trying to create understanding and bridge the gap and help people to think a little bit more, uh, I think, accurately about mm. their fellow human beings. Uh, there's no money in that. <laughs> you know, no, there's, there's not. It's there's, not. It's there's, not. There's, no, there's no money in like, hey, can't we all just get along? Or, hey, you know, those people you hate, they're probably not so bad. You're, you're not going to make any money <laughs> no, in that. It's, no, it's not. It's certain when you say to people, hey, how about holding, how about the potential of holding a different idea? Yeah. That's not, that's not, that's not going to get you money. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, it's not all about money. It's, it really isn't. It's actually about a society that's functioning and healthy that allows for us all to thrive in it. That's actually the stuff that gives your life meaning, I think. You can have loads of money and you can have absolutely no meaning. I do a lot of work in the corporate space and I meet a lot of people who, who, who talk about that to me. They get remunerated massively and they wonder where the meaning in their life is. And uh, you can do both things. You can obviously get remunerated very well and have meaning. And I think that's a really important thing that just because you don't make money out of something, I think it's really important that you see, well, you know what, something that sustains me a lot more than being able to buy whatever it is. And that's doing work that's meaningful. And perhaps if you change one person's idea about something or you allow them to see something differently, well, there you go. I think that's the, that's the payoff. Yeah. So before we started recording, you were rattling off a bunch of other things that you are involved in. And what else would you like to share with the listeners? Yeah, well, I suppose I'm the director of Therapy Institute and I'm and why I'm here in the Fulbright in America um, is because I'm really interested in inclusion, obviously. I, I really, you know, it's something that I'm passionate about, Kirk. I'm really passionate. And when I hear your podcast and I hear often, I often hear that idea when, I, when, I'm, when I'm thinking, what is it that they're dealing with today in this? It's about inclusion and about holding ideas about people and holding them lightly. And I suppose labeling and how we talk to ourselves is something I'd love to talk to your listeners about because I think there's a very important conversation about freeing yourself from the labels that you were given yourself through education. Mm-hmm. And I lecture I lecture in uh, DCU in Dublin around this. I've written a course around this and I lecture on it. And that's what my Fulbright is really about. It's about training teachers how to think about inclusion. And inclusion is kind of a sexy word. You know, it's kind of a popular word at the moment. Um, it's like hybrid. Hybrid and inclusion are the two, the two big ones at the moment. And um, I often think it's just a word that people use and it's got no meaning. You know, let's, let's, let's just do inclusion. Okay. Let's do inclusion. What the hell does that mean, right? Yeah. And uh, my idea about it is always that it starts within. I mean, if you hold really destructive paradigms about people or very linear ideas about a, a certain type of person, it's going to be present in your classroom. It's going to be present in your life. And it's going to be present in your relationships. And so something I think is really important conversation for your listeners is to think about the labels that they were they received themselves. And I often find this myself when I'm talking to teachers. I can see the weight being lifted off them. I can see them kind of going, holy crap, I have been laboring with this label and it's not fit for purpose anymore. And I myself, you know, as a, as a kid growing up, um, my dad was a journalist, a pretty famous journalist in Ireland. Um, you know, he wrote for the Irish Times and everything looked great on the outside. You know, everyone said that family is fabulous, but he was an alcoholic. And so we were living with addiction and it was a pretty, pretty unpleasant time, place to be at times. And I certainly was labeled as a kid going through school as, you know, being bright and capable, lazy, uh, not like his brother, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff, difficult, problematic, you know, those kind of things were definitely thrown at me as a, as a kid, you know, and 
doesn't care. Those were things that, you know, it doesn't, you know, going to waste his ability. And those are different things I, I, I heard as a, as a kid coming through the school and really labored with them for a long time and lived them out for a long time until I figured it out myself. And I think we can, we all get labeled very, very heavily through the educational system. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, whether it's direct labels like you're dumb or you're lazy yeah, or stupid. something, or you're, you're just treated that way, yeah, you're treated like you're incompetent, treated like you don't matter, then those concepts definitely become internalized. Yeah, they absolutely do. They become entrenched, and then they become not only are they you know firing these neurons are firing together, they're making this thought. They're becoming pathways. So when you have a thought about yourself, it's this negative thought: I'm not that good, I'm not valuable, I don't deserve anything, you know. And then they go off and launch into negative relationships to confirm what they already believe about themselves, and further have dysfunctionality in their lives. And I, I think that's such an important conversation to have, so that you free people from the paradigms that they hold about themselves because generally and this is what i found in my research and i've carried out a lot of research around the self and inclusion and and labels you know and I, when i say this to student teachers and and to, to parents and to teenagers someone who launches out a label and calls you stupid or a teacher who says something negatively about you or or even i think it's even more insidious than what you described they just ignore you and they, there's an unwritten thing there. You don't bother me. I don't bother you. You go through this. I'll teach these guys. You shut up over here. And I mean, it's an incredibly destructive thing to, for a child to experience that isolation. Then that's what it is. It's, it's exclusion. And that stuff really hurts, physically hurts, like neuroscience would, would show us that when you're excluded, the part of the brain, the dorsal portion of the anterior cingulate cortex fires. And that's the same thing that fires when you hit your hand with a hammer. And it comes from your evolutionary past. It comes out of like, you know, when you were, when we were starting off on this human journey and we were, you know, in our tribes, if you were outside that tribe, you were certain to die. So your brain developed a warning system to kind of go, whoop, you know, get back in your tribe here and, and don't be excluded. And when you do that to a child, you're actually, you know, you know, you're firing that part of the brain and they, it feels sick, uh, sickness, you know, really, really terrible just just this churning develops within the child's thinking about themselves and as you said there you know the internalized voice becomes negative and so what i try to do is i I try to when i say to teachers you know write down the labels you've received positive and negative and generally the negative one is you know and the positive one isn't so full you know the odd little thing here but like really like you know stupid not that good you're not as bad you're not that bad you're never amount one person said to me you never amount to anything you're just like you know you're not capable you know, you're stupid. And so what I, what I try to show to people is that when you launch a label about someone and think about it yourself when you're working and you're, you know, you're meeting people on your podcast and your brain is going to be firing it and thinking, you were probably thinking when you met me, you know, Irish guy, and there's a few things going on in your head that you, you'd categorize, right? And that's because our brains are generally, you know, incredible beyond comprehension, but also a bit lazy. Mm-hmm. And we have about 60,000 thoughts a day and are we conscious of those? No, we're conscious of the familiar ones. It just feeds up the familiar ones to us. And we're going to go, yes, I know that kind of person, Kirk, someone like I know in psychology. And, and, and so your brain is kind of going, yes, in my in-bias, in my out-bias. And so we're saying these things. And so when a teacher says something really negative about us, it's speaking to their inability to have competency to manage you or to motivate you or to instruct you in a positive way. It's a way of relinquishing responsibility for the fact that you don't have the competencies to deal with the child. Mm-hmm. So when a child, when a teacher says that child, and I hear this all the time in the class, in, this, in the classroom or in the staff room, that, ch- that child 
Kirk, oh, he's so lazy. You know, he's such a pain in there. You know, you hear those conversations. And I know exactly what's going on. Another teacher comes in and goes, yeah, he is really lazy. And then another person comes in and, the, you know, it's a real powerful force here. Three people sitting down going, that child is some pain in the arse, whatever they're saying about the child. And you can imagine what they do when they go back into the classroom and that child is sitting in front of them because they've been, their ideas have been affirmed by their other colleagues. That child is going to get absolutely excluded from the educational process. And it's really important that when you're a child who's experienced labels, because that's what we all experience. And when you even, when you're like the eldest, the, the middle and the, the youngest child, let's say if there's three in the family, you know, your parents are labeling you mm-hmm. the responsible one, the quiet one, the crazy one, you know, you're getting, you're getting labeled by your family. And when your parents speak about you to their friends and you hear them saying, Oh, you know, Richard, he's just an anxious child, you know, and you're getting labeled like that. Again, it's about inability. It's about competencies. It's about the inability to be able to manage or to, you know, productively uh, develop something in a child, positively help a child. And so when you label, what you're doing is you're removing the locus of it within you as the parent or the teacher or the educator, and you're putting it inside the child and you're saying, well, that's them. That's what they have. It's not my responsibility. It's them. They're lazy. They're good for nothing. They're stupid. So not me. It's them. And it's incredibly destructive. Yeah. Yeah, well put. When we feel powerless, you know, teachers are tasked with getting the kids through school, Mm. helping them to learn, getting them to pass. And when a child isn't doing very well in school, you might try a few things as a teacher. If those things don't work, then there's a temptation just to blame the student. And I notice this, and I see it for sure among therapists as well. When therapists get together, they'll they'll label certain clients. Mm. Uh, but the difference with uh, teachers is that multiple teachers will have contact with the same student. You don't you usually have that with therapists. Mm. You know, therapists are usually consulting about a client that none of the other therapists know about. But anyway, I worked for a while as contracted for many years with um, a school, and I would integrate as a professional with the other uh, teachers and the students. And I would come to the student uh, population fresh. I, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know the labels. I just came to the students uh, with an open mind and would experience them as they were, so so to speak, because I didn't I didn't have any preconceived notion. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that the teachers would treat the students differently, and uh, and it's just anecdotal. I I can't really know for sure, but I found that there was always one kid that was thought of as the screw up or the rebellious one or the stupid one or something. And I would see them react to, to that student. And I, I just thought, why are you, why are you reacting to that student differently than the mm. others? Cause that student isn't really doing anything different. Mm. And, or the student would just be a little bit more extroverted or a little bit more, or sometimes it was, I would take a guess and say that uh, some of the more, jockish students would be labeled stupid or something. I, I don't know if that Absolutely. was a, that was a bias just like, mm. he, Oh, he's, he's sort of a dumb jock, even though mm. I thought, well, he does, he's not dumb. <laughs> he, he's a little jockey, but you know, it, it's fine. Yeah. And it affected the rest of the students. The rest of the, I, I noticed that. So I'll never forget. There was this one moment where I'm hanging out with students, none of the teachers are around and everything's just kind of fluid and moving around socially and people are talking and I'm talking with them. The teachers come in and they, and as the students start to interact, I noticed they started labeling this one student 
And then I saw the rest of the students kind of react to that student differently. And then I saw the student kind of shut down. And again, it's just anecdotal. I, I, I could just be making up a story, but I, I felt like in this little moment, I saw the kids being free to be themselves and that one kid able to be themselves without feeling like there's something wrong with them. The teachers come in with whatever story they had developed. Maybe the kid was, you know, you know, a difficult in the past or had trouble in some class. And then they just label the kid or, you know, treat the kid a certain way. And then not only do they get that, but then all the students fall in line with that narrative of, of that student. And then the student shuts down because of that narrative. Uh, it was, it was interesting to watch for sure. Oh, that's an incredible anecdote. That's an incredible insight into what I'm kind of talking about in my study. I mean, that's, that's absolutely it. You know, and a lot of my work is through narrative. You know, I do a lot of work, you know, when I work with teenagers, I work with through a narrative lens, you know, about the stories that we tell ourselves. And there's a child who's been given an incredibly powerful story and that the class then align with the teacher when they come in and then he's further scapegoated. And, you know, it's just, it's so destructive. And you can imagine where that child goes off. And you'd love to talk to that child now and see how long did it take you to figure that out? Did you figure it out? That it's about your teacher's competency and your, you know, the students just went along with it. But there's a very famous study called um, the Pygmalion in the Classroom. I don't know if you're aware of it by a psychologist, Bob Rosenthal in the 60s, I think it was 64, carried out the study. He was, he went into a school that was very highly streamed. You know, one was like, you know, academic and going to go and down, down here in five or six were like, not going to attain anything. They were considered like the dunces and they weren't going to go nowhere. And Bob Rosenthal and his team came into the school and said, uh, they're carrying out this test for Harvard. So it sounded pretty good, Harvard, right? So all the teachers were like, whoa, Harvard are here at fab. And they were carrying out this test called the inflected acquisitions test, right? And uh, so they went through all the schools, the, all the classrooms, testing all the students. And then they gave back the feedback to the management and the teachers and they said, you know, you're class five here. They're, they tested the highest for inflected acquisition. They're going to go, the, they're, they're your superstars. And the teachers are like, what the hell are you talking about? These guys are the dunces. And they're like, no, no, this, this test, which is like, you know, Harvard. And they were like, okay, Harvard, it has to be, you know, reliable. These, these students are going to, they're going to really do well. They've got great potential. And when the real study was, they wanted to, what Bob Rosenthal and his team were doing, let's see how the teachers talk to the students now, now that they've got a different idea about who the students are. And they noticed when they started, when they set up their whole, this, the whole system and the, the real study, the teachers were much more hopeful in their conversations with the students. And as a result, their grades exponentially went up as a result. And, and that's exactly what that, what you, that's what brought up for me there as you were, as you were telling that story. There's a kid who's been given a narrative, who's, who's been given a narrative that's going to always stop him from thriving that he's going to live out and live that story out, you know, and, and that's what, that's why I wanted to have that conversation. It's really important that we free ourselves from the paradigm, these restrictive paradigms, because Kurt, as you know, anything is possible. We can do anything once we, once we start to believe in ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, and when other people believe in us, that, yeah, which exactly. is what you're saying, right? We, we, we can't believe in ourselves unless other people believe in us. That's my belief. Yeah. And, True. and I, I noticed this in my work with, kids early on, I noticed that when I said, you know, we'd be talking with the parents and the kids and the kid would be like skipping school or uh, getting too angry at home or something, losing his temper. And I started to say to the kids, I know that you can do this. I know you mm. can control your anger. I know that you can 
divert your anger in a different way. Cause I, I know you because you're a good person and you're smart and you're capable and you're mature, even though in the back of my mind, there's another narrative, a competing narrative that the kid mm. is a screw up, that the kid yeah, will never amount to anything. The yeah, kid has yeah, a, yeah. an emotional problem. Mm. And it's easy to have that kind of narrative, particularly if that's the narrative of the family. And as I would just continue to, and I would, I would have to believe it to say it. It's hard for me to mm. lie, <laughs> but also I felt like if I truly believed it, it would come across differently too. And so I mm. really focus and almost like a mindfulness exercise, focus on the positive of this, of this kid and, and really emphasize that and say, I believe in you. And again, it's just anecdotal, but I found that the kids would rise to the occasion. They would say, I just imagine that's what's going on in your head is what you're talking about. Yeah. That, oh, I, you mean I, I'm not a screw up. I'm not a problematic person. I'm not a person with an anger problem. I'm what this guy says, which is I'm a mature. Mm. It, I, you know, actually where I got it from is my mom. My mom, I watched. So my mom uh, had a daycare in our house growing up. And so I watched her masterfully manipulate slash uh, you know, help the children because, you know, there's 10 four-year-olds running around her house and she had to keep them under control by herself. <laughs> and since we lived in a pretty small house, I couldn't really get away from it. I wanted to at the age of 14, but I couldn't. But so I, I passively observed the way my mom dealt with people. And one of the things that she would do is this, she'd be like, she, she that's like one of the, like a kid would fall and, they weren't really hurt, but they would start screaming. Ah! And my mom would detect you're, they're just, you know, playing it up. And, up and my mom would come up and say, you are a big girl and I know you can take it. And the kid would go, <gasps> you know, and you just see the kid sort of stand Change. up. I'm a big girl. I can take it. And the, you know, the kid would go on. I'd be like, Whoa, that's masterful. <laughs> like it's very true. And, uh, uh, I think that's what influenced me in working with kids. And what that, what, what that is, is like externalizing the problem and reframing it. Yeah. So, you know, and they're the two techniques that I often use with, with teenagers is externalizing because you do have ideas about yourself that they're concrete. The self is concrete. So, I mean, it's an error in our thinking that the self is a very concrete thing. And so if you say that I'm this, well, that's what I am. If I'm a big girl's blouse and I'm soft, that's what I, how I'll be. And so that's, that's what people think, you know. And so it's really important that when you externalize something, you know, you remove the problem. So narrative therapy would say the problem is the problem. The child isn't the problem. The problem is the problem. And with the way you're talking to your students is that that's what you did there. As you said, you know, this is the issue here. We need, we need to look at this, not you, but this behavior. Right. And that, huh, it's not me. Holy, it just changes their thinking. And yeah. then you, re you reframe it for them. Yeah. So you're such a renaissance man. I'm curious what your career is going to hold for you in the future. Well, I'm thinking about forming the Beatles next now. And <laughs> I see, is that a Rickenbacker in the background there, Kirk? Is it? No, it's a, uh, yeah, I won't go into it, but yeah. it, it's not a Rickenbacker. Uh, it looks lovely anyway. I played the guitar myself. Uh, oh, okay. I, lo I love music. But um, so the future, I, I, I'm the, I set up a charity. I work in the Philippines a lot. I've been working there for 15 years. I've got a charity called Embrace Philippines. I'm hoping to develop that further. It's all about inclusion. I work with the Badjo children out there. It's a wonderful, it's just an incredible experience. And which children? 
the Bajau, they're an incredible tribe. They're a seafaring tribe, Kirk. If you ever, if you ever felt you wanted to come out and, and experience this thing, I'd love to have you over there. It's an incredible experience. I, we go work, I've been working there now for 15 years. Two years ago, I set up a cultural exchange where they came to Ireland. Three members of the tribe came to Ireland and lived with me and my family. It was just an incredible experience. And they're called Bajau. They're seafaring. So they live above the water, you know, you, really rudimentary, really, you know, economic, there's, you know, there's their only financing is the fathers kind of swim for pearls. They can hold, the fathers can hold their breath for up to five minutes and they walk on the seabed and they go, you know, fishing and they, they collect pearls and then the kids sell the pearls. It's just an incredible culture. They're the most beautiful, open and funny people you'll ever meet. And um, I've been doing that now for 15 years and at the moment we're trying to build a school, but it's been, it's been slow because of COVID and they've been very heavily affected by it. So, you know, I'm trying to set up a medical mission where we're providing food and medicine and education and we're training back Bajaus to go to to go into third level education so that they could come back and educate their own and set up a system where it just sustains itself, you know, and that's what we're trying to do at the moment. And it's just where can people find out more information about that? Yeah, you can you can go onto our webpage called embracephilippines.ie www.embracephilippines.ie. We have a webpage there, and you can contact us. And we've news we've a news letter that goes out. We talk about what we're doing and it's just a real passion of mine. It's just something that I, I, I feel incredibly privileged and honored to be able to be allowed into this tribe. And, um, I always leave a little bit guilty thinking I learned, I learned a lot more again about myself than they could have ever got from us and our project. You know, they're just, it just, it, it's hard to describe them, but they're the most open and honest people. There's no guard, you know, in Western society, we've a bit of a guard checking each other out, see what you're about. And do I like you? And, you know, all this kind of stuff that we have and we're closed. They're just the most open and actually f- hilarious people you'll ever meet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I go over there once a year and I bring over students and we do a project and it's just, it's great fun. You know, it is great fun, but it's just, that's something that I, w- I want to work in more as I go, as I get older in my life, for sure. Yeah, I don't know if this applies, but uh, I will sometimes talk about the idea that as our societies, our Western societies become the way that they are, which is more isolated, more technology oriented, more work oriented, mm. more, I don't know, keeping up with the Jones, disconnected, yeah. And along the way, we think of ourselves as entitled or privileged, and we will uh, look at a tribe that is you know, struggling and Mm. having to work all day long and Mm. trying to find fish and oysters and pearls and whatnot. Mm. whatnot, And they can't afford an iPhone or Mm. maybe even a roof over their head. And we look at them when we think, Oh, poor them. It must, Mm. it must be really terrible to be them. But then you meet them and they're uh, a thousand times happier than (laughs) the average American is. And uh, the, you know, lesson potentially is that, our <clears throat> bias for materialism, for technology, for um, the stuff. kinds of things, yeah, stuff, the kinds yeah. of things that we will value is actually in direct opposite with our human needs. You know, I when, when, more. when you live in, a, in a, a situation like maybe the people you're talking about, you're in frequent contact with your friends and family, you are connecting with nature you're not being bombarded with a bunch of complicated emails and tasks and um, uh, you are able to uh, speak your mind directly to someone. You don't have to tweet, you know, uh, all that facilitates attachments and our natural state and happiness and 
feeling of safety that do you experience that with those people i couldn't agree more with what you're saying there and echo it and i've written a lot about this um in ireland i think it's a it really is a striking observation as a human being you know to go out there and to see a people and you have preconceived presuppositions about wealth and attaining things and gaining stuff and i think it's such a good point you raise because i t- i talk a lot about what you know happiness and how to achieve happiness and contentment you know whatever that is and um a huge thing i find when i'm with the bajo is that they are so connected to each other mm. in one small little tiny room with a corrugated sheet of iron over them you might have the grandmother the parents, the children, and their children. So you'd have like four or five lines of the family. And then they're all connected. You know, their neighbors next door, their uncles, and the whole community are connected to each other. There's no doors that lock them off from each other. They're all all open. It's like some sort of Sophocles play. They can all come in and out of each other's house. It's It's an incredible existence. And when they came to Ireland to live with me for three months, I asked them many times, what do you think of my life? I'd say, too fast, Mm. too fast. And they said, when do you get time to, you know, be you? And they couldn't get over the concept of child minding was something that just blew their mind. Child you, what? Child minding. Oh, you know, minding. That, that a, a stranger, you'd give your child to a stranger and you'd remunerate that stranger with money for minding your child. They couldn't get this concept. I mean, they, they really struggled. There's, it was actually a very funny picture. I took when they first came, they saw the dishwasher and they're like, what the hell is that? And I was like, that's a dishwasher that washes the dishes. And they were like, what? And what's this? And I was like, that's a washing machine. They're like, what the hell is that about? And I was like, well, that's, that's what we do here. And they're like, well, why can't you do it yourself? <laughs> you know? And they have no word for suicide in their culture. Mm. You know, and they struggle. I mean, you know, they struggle to get food. Their struggle is food and that. But they are, if you were looking at a happiness monitor, you know, they are way up there. And I think it's because they're connected. And I think that's what we suffer with. I think what you're, it's a fool's errand bringing things into your life and searching for materialism and trying to gain, 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 gain. Because ultimately, you know, when you do gain, you realize it doesn't sustain at all. Buying a nice car, it's a nice little moment for like, you know, a day or two. <laughs> but after that, it's gone, you know, and, and, and that's, it's so ephemeral. Materialism is such an ephemeral, short lasting thing. Mm. So what sustains us is connecting. I think as a society, I think COVID probably has done it, has probably illuminated it. social distancing. It's not something we're good at. Right. We need to be more connected. And, yeah. I, and, you know, even here in Antioch, when I, you know, you go into the toilet, everything is like, you know, just, you put your hand under, you don't touch anything, you get the thing that comes. So we're disconnecting ourselves massively from each other. And I think it's something that's probably seen the rise in, you know, why we feel so unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. And the other aspect of this, other than materialism, is living arrangements and what we value, you know, the, as people get more money, they get bigger and bigger homes mm. and everyone gets their own room. Everyone gets their own office. More detached. Everyone, right. Everyone get, you know, everyone gets their own spot in the garage and the house is further away from your neighbors. Like that's the ideal. Mm. The ideal is bigger house, bigger yard, more rooms. And I, I think that um, that's not necessarily a terrible thing, but I, I think that people need to, think about, you know, because it gets annoying, you know, people get on your nerves, right? But we, I don't know if it's an American thing or a Western thing or a human thing, but we, when we get annoyed with people, when they get, cause I'm guessing that the, the group of people you're talking about, they occasionally get annoyed with people, right? They, they get annoyed with each other. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it happens at least sometimes. 
And there's an impulse of like, well, I need to isolate myself away from them to avoid getting annoyed. But mm. the hidden cost there obviously is all the mm. benefits you were talking about. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Well, is that, is that what you're going to be spending all your time on? Cause I'm under the impression you're doing like 15 different things. No, I do. I do a lot of things. I must say I do a lot of things. I, I love the diversity work. I would find doing one thing quite, you know, I'd get bored with it quite quickly. So I, I like doing my week is very diverse, you know, so and, what else uh, are you going to be doing in the future? I'm yeah, I've got a book in the pipeline. I'm, uh, you know, just at the moment writing a new book about basically the, the impact the family has on you through your development. And it's kind of like what I'm trying to write is a book that will help people who have been labeled parents, you know, in their relationships, parenting their kids, but also kids who've come through families that have been labeled and, and trying to rewrite or reauthor those ideas. So it's a book kind of um, that's designed to help kind of like everybody. So I'm going to start that. Uh, I've, I've got the go ahead on it. So I'm, I'm going to start that now in the fall. Um, so that's a, that's the big next thing. Uh, series two of Eating with the Enemy is coming out. So that's going to be something I've been working with in the winter in Ireland. And uh, I write every Thursday. So I'm going to keep that going. I love my I love my column. I love working for the Irish Examiner. It's just a great it's a great space that they say to me, write whatever you want to write about. That's incredible. What's your next article about? Um, I, it might be this. It could be this. It could be this conversation. Um, I'll have to sit. I'll have to let this kind of like percolate for a while and see how I feel about what, what kind of came up here. It yeah. could be this. I, I definitely have one about Seattle. I, I did write about my first interaction with Seattle last two weeks ago about inclusion and, and coming to Antioch in my Fulbright. Um, I do find the homeless and the drug ap- epidemic here in Seattle quite striking coming from Ireland. Yeah, tell us about that because I, I I only observe it as a as a lay person, yeah. I, I don't, I, and I read articles, but I, I feel lost. I work with, at times I get invited into the Irish government to talk to the, the prime minister, the Taoiseach, as we'd call him, about mental health issues. Um, and I was thinking if I was asked in here to talk about Seattle, I'd have so many things to say as a, an outsider's perspective. Yeah. I think people need to hear it because you have a beautiful city here. I mean, Washington, my God, it's yeah. an incredible, it's just so beautiful. And Seattle is a city, my God, it's incredible. I'm just, I'm blown away by it because I've never come up this area. I always go to kind of like, you know, New York, Boston. I, I lived in Providence for a while, you know, so I've always gone around there, but I've, I've never come up here. I've gone to Florida, but I've never come up here. And this is my first time up here. And I'm obviously I was into Nirvana and the whole grunge thing in the nineties. And I saw loads of interviews and I thought that city looks pretty cool. We watched Frasier. I saw Sleepless in Seattle. So I was very aware of the city, um, but never had, had never experienced it firsthand. And I suppose what struck me is the beauty and then the homeless crisis and the heroin, as I would see it, maybe I'm wrong, but from my point of view, a heroin epidemic, you know, the needles everywhere. Cause I got my daughters here with me. My family are here with me in, in America. And we walk down to, you know, Pike market most evenings and it's quite striking. Yeah. And I'm trying to help my kids process what they're seeing, you know? So I'm curious, what else did you, what else do you observe about us in America and or Seattle? It's like the smell in someone's house. They don't know it because they live in it for so yeah. long. You walk and go, what the hell yeah. is this? Right. Um, yeah, I suppose I haven't really got a good a good view of, I had not, that's not a good view, but I haven't got a correct view because of the pandemic. There's no one in here. Right. I'm in here myself doing my research and I'm connecting online to classes. So I, I don't get a real sense of the milieu or the, the cultural, the community part of it. Yeah. Um, I suppose that's what I, what I what I don't get to see. It's a pity because, you know, you don't often get Fulbright scholarships. And unfortunately, I got it when I was in the midst of the bloody pandemic. So I'm not getting a full, uh, a good swing at it. But um 
It's a very good question. I suppose what I've noticed here that uh, you're probably aware of it though. Uh, you're much more vocal about Black Lives Matter than we are in Ireland. Mm. We don't really talk about it so much. Mm. You know, there was a, there was just a rally there a couple of days ago when I was getting my daughter's haircut, and they they came past, and it was a it was kind of, I think it was a it was a, a rally about Black Lives Matter, and you know, and I suppose you're, I, I find that as a as a as a city, it's very vocal, and I see things on the window that says, you know, we believe in Black Lives Matter. If you don't, don't come in. Mm-hmm. Now, you'd never see that in Ireland. I've never seen that before. You know, that's the first time I've ever seen a sign like that. I suppose it, it just, um, the systemic racism part, I suppose, maybe you're more in tune with it than we are, you know, as a society where we're quite small, we're, we're diverse, but not for long. You know, we were only diverse for the last 30 years, probably, mm. you know, when I grew up in school, there wouldn't have ever been a, you know, a black child in there with me. I've never met a black teacher in my, in my experience going through education mm. and uh, we don't hear about systemic racism, but there it is right there. You know, the, the fact that you wouldn't, you don't see people in the you know, black community working in education. Mm. That's a piece there that we don't address or talk about. So we're less vocal about it. I suppose something that I think, maybe this is something that I think, right? And it might be a bit controversial, but this is what I think. Um, I think you think you're liberal in America, mm. you know, and I, and I think we probably think we're not liberal in Ireland and we probably are quite liberal. We're quite, mm. you, do, you, do you understand what I mean, yeah, what I mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. That there's, a, I think for all the land of the free, I think America can be quite puritanical mm-hmm. and, uh, and a lot of stuff doesn't get talked about. And it's just kind of sweeped under the carpet a little bit. Whereas in Ireland, we think we're more conservative than we are. If, if you understand what I what I mean, yeah, I don't know about Ireland, but I do sometimes think about how liberal Americans will think of themselves as very yeah. liberal, meaning that they're very open minded, they're very accepting, they're not oppressing other people. Mm. And yet they absolutely are, you know. With, uh, un, unknown to themselves, I suppose. And that's probably right. the most dangerous position to find yourself in. Right. So off topic, what's the most annoying thing about Seattle or Americans to you? <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble here. <laughs> what's the most annoying thing about Americans? I think probably overvalidating every feeling. Oh, what do you mean for other people or themselves? For themselves, or uh, I suppose what I find about Americans is they t- they talk about you know recent events, but like four seconds ago, as if it was something that happened a long time. You know, and then I was like, and then that was like, but like in the middle of the conversation, <laughs> it's hard it's hard to explain what I mean. But I suppose the overvalidating of feelings. I come from Ireland. We're Catholics. You know, we're very emotionally repressed. <laughs> So, you know, we, we, we don't express too much emotions, uh, you know, a lot, you know. And so I find it, you know, when and I can hear walking on the street conversation. I felt this when you said that they're in the middle of the conversation that she felt this about in the middle, you know, and, you know, it, it's in that moment. I'm kind of going, my God, you'd never hear a conversation like that. In Ireland. And it's probably that's probably a little thing that kind of just a cultural irks me a little bit. The overvalidation of every feeling. Like if it taken to an extreme, it's too uh, navel gazy, too too narcissistic. Maybe, maybe, or that all feelings have to be validated. I mean, you know, yeah, or, or that you have to think, am I okay now? How am I feeling now? I mean, right, you know. So just you know, we'd be very much the strong, silent types in Ireland. You just suck it up and you get on, you keep going. Right, <laughs> not right. that not that healthy either. But we've made a we've made a correction in that one. But um, I suppose that's something that irks me a little bit. Just uh, how, well, I'm curious, how often do you hear people? saying that is it is it frequently 
It would be actually, you know, every time I get the ferry to go up to Brainbridge or in the really? streets and sitting in a cafe there, huh. I'd hear people talking about their, you know, you know, just to, <laughs> it's funny. I suppose. That's really interesting. I mean, I'm going to have to take note of that. Uh, uh, and, and, because uh, uh, you know, I trust your observation, and that's, as you say, mm. you walk into a house where there's a s- funny smell. The residents never smell it because they're nose blind, and someone from the outside notices things. And so, I have to, I have to take note of that. I suppose, yeah, I was, I was listening to a conversation on the. This is a, probably an example of it. I was, I don't know what, I don't know what it is I'm trying to explain, but it's definitely something I feel when I'm in America. And this girl was talking to her boyfriend, and she asked him, "What's your true north?" Right, and I was uh-huh. like, "What?" Listen to this, you know, just, just listening into it, and he was like, "Well," and they were having this conversation about what's his what's his kind of truth. I think, you okay. know, and you know, you would never hear a conversation like that in your in in Europe. Uh-huh. In your, you know, you know, somebody never said, to you, "What's your true north, Richard?" Uh-huh. Like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> what are you I, on about? I suppose that's kind of a West Coast thing, honestly, because mm. it reminds me of. It's kind of lovely in a way. I think it's kind of lovely, but it's kind of just, I suppose it's just striking for me. It's, it's sort of um, stoner talk. I feel like mm. the West Coast has, has a fair amount of stonerism mm. in its, in its uh, culture <laughs> of just like, whoa, dude, like, yeah. what's yeah. your, what are you feeling, man? Yeah, like, yeah. There, what's coming a, up for you now? Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of that that's been going on since the 70s, I think. Mm. And, and so I think Seattle probably has a fair amount of that. that that's funny. That's and hilarious. then as, as Europeans, I suppose, what we notice when we look at America is that a, a lot of Americans, not, not all Americans, but a lot of Americans talk about it being the greatest country in the world. Mm. And it's a great country. But as, yeah. you, as you know, it is a great country. I, 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 as I said, in Ireland, it's like a concept. It's like a, it's, it's like, it's, it's hard to explain it. It's just, it's like a, yeah, like a dream almost. This idea of America. It's just, yeah. just, just, just a beautiful dream kind of to us. But there's, you know, if you need to say that it's the greatest country in the world, and I hear this when I watch Fox News, you know, they talk about yeah. this, this is the greatest country in the world. I'm like, well, you'd never, you'd never hear an Irish person or an Irish prime minister, or, you know, the Antichok say, this right. is the greatest country in the world. You'd never hear the, you know, the, the French president saying, this is the greatest country in the world. But it's just something that, Amer- you know, American politicians often say, you're kind of going, who are they saying this to? Because... Who are they trying to convince? This is what I wonder. Who are they trying to convince when they say those things? Yeah, and by what measure exactly? Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, well, what's your what's your metric? Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's the metric here? Or, you yeah, know. I think that has to do with the fact that in other parts of the world you have the benefit of having other countries that are close by. Mm. In the United States, I think you're right. Vast majority of Americans, the the only borders they would. And if ever they would cross would be into Canada or Mexico. Mm. And so, uh, and I think the vast majority of Americans don't even do that. So there's this ignorance of, you know, uh, I'll never forget. I was, there was a sort of a distant relative and that we were, it was during the Fukushima um, earthquake and the, uh, you know, it was in the news and we were talking about it over dinner and this distant relative said something like, Oh yeah, I mean earthquake in Japan, you know, and those other countries, their their buildings are just so flimsy, they just like fall down. And I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, Japan is one of the most the technologically advanced, and particularly with earthquake safety, their buildings the, move with it. Yeah, in the world, and she just had this idea of like, well, it's another country, therefore it must just be, you know, one of those crap countries, you know, as some politicians <laughs> would call it. And I'm like. 
the ignorance <laughs> of that statement, you know, like, uh, the, and the notion that another country could actually have something better than yeah. the United States is yeah, actually exactly. really valuable, quite actually. strange to people. Like, wait, some another country's doing something better than us? That that can't be. You know, we have <laughs> we have the biggest uh, military. We have uh, you know Hollywood and Apple, and you know we're the best. And it's it limits us severely. You know, mm. and I, I think Europe benefits from being able to say, huh? Well, you know. Ireland's doing this thing and they seem to be doing well. Let's, let's, yeah. try, let's try to adopt exactly. that. Exactly. We, we, we do do that with Europe. We do look at each other and we do. There's a lot of communication between the countries, a lot of conferences, a lot of meetings about what's going on, what's working. I think America, I think you're right about America. I think it's just, it's such a vast continent. I, I can see why people don't leave it. You know, you can see why people holiday down to San Francisco or go to Vegas or go to Miami. You can see it's just, it's got, as a, as a country, it's got everything yeah. in this I mean, it's just incredible. It's, I, I, I absolutely love this country. And I, uh, and I, I do, as I said, I, I feel connected to it. And I, I can't wait to go down to Mississippi at some point and do that, you know, and go to, you know, I really want to drive through there when my kids get a bit older and go to, you know, Kentucky and see where Ali grew up. And, you know, my whole childhood has been, you know, these kind of ideas and Elvis. And so I'm really into bluegrass music. And I just can't uh-huh. wait to get down there and, and, and be a part of all that. But a little, a little funny anecdote. I was in New York in 2015. Um, and this, we were in a bar and this girl, these girls came over chatting to us and we we're chatting to them and they were saying, where are you guys from? And we were like, we're from Ireland. They're like, oh my God, that's amazing. They're like, do you guys know of Michael Jackson? <laughs> and I just, play, I just played along and I was like, Michael who? Like, Michael Jackson? I was like, no, never heard of him. I was like, what is he, a basketball player? She's like, no, 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 Michael Jackson. He's... And then she's like, oh my God, they don't know who Michael Jackson is. She's like, do you know Coca-Cola? And I was like, no. Coca-Cola. And we had this conversation. It was just funny. Myself and my brother were laughing. And I asked her, I said, what do you do as a career? Do you mind me asking? She said, I'm a primary school teacher. And I said, when the kids ask you about Europe, what do you tell them? And she's like, what do you mean? I said, because you've obviously got a concept of Ireland has been like, you know, we're all in caves and there's no TV. I was like, of course, and rolling hills and there's no community. I was like, of course we know Michael Jackson. (laughs) Of course. I said, he played in Ireland in like 1986 for God's sake in Cork. I said, of course we know him. Of course we know Coke. I was like, I think you need to have a little look outside America and see what's going on in the other parts of the world because, you know, your kids are going to ask you about it. Right. To be able to inform them about it. Yeah. Well, uh, Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a great honor, Kirk. I mean, I mean, honestly, I've you know, I've, I've known of you now for about five or six years, and I do listen to your podcast, and I do feel somehow that you're responsible for this chaos in my life currently in Antioch <laughs> University. That you you put me in the right direction. So, I mean, when I sent you that email the first time, because I saw a video of you talking about Antioch. I thought that's the dude I want to talk to there. He seems to know his stuff. And when we spoke, you know, you could have easily kind of gone whatever and ignored that email, but you were generous enough of spirit to say, you know who you need to talk to? It's Colin Ward. And so you, you pointed me in the right direction. So for that, I am re- eternally grateful. So thank you so much. Uh, can, can I just say to your, your listeners, if they want to connect with me, they can, uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, official Richard Hogan. And I'm always releasing, I'm always putting up my articles that I write for the paper and I'm putting up ideas about parenting and I'm putting up ideas about society and how we can be more inclusive as a society. I'd love to connect with some of your listeners if they wanted to. That's official Richard Hogan uh, on Instagram. Yeah, great. All right. Well, everyone out there, please take care of yourself because why, Richard? Because you are absolutely unique and there is no one but you in this world and, and, and our time here is finite and make the most of it and free yourself from all the negative stuff that holds you back and just thrive. 